This is the Cherryleaf Podcast. Just before we start the podcast, a couple of items of news. We've just launched a new advanced business writing course. It's not for technical communicators, but for those people that want to be better business communicators. It contains a collection of courses, including a new one on report writing that isn't available anywhere else in our training bundles. Again, like the advanced technical writing course, it is available on a low-cost monthly fee basis. And the second item of news is that we've updated our editing and proofreading online course. There are a couple of videos where the sound wasn't quite right. We've re-recorded three of the videos and they're now uploaded to the platform. You'll find details on these courses on the cherryleaf.com website or our teaching platform cherryleaf.teachable.com. Okay, let's start the episode. You okay? I'm okay. How does the audio sound? It sounds okay. I'm trying out a new headset uh, or trying a headset for this call for the first time. So hopefully my end's clear. It sounds good to me. I'll just start off. I think that might be the best thing to do. Normally the way that we start the interviews on the podcast is just ask the person to introduce themselves. So it'd be good to know who you are. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Well, my name is Alexandra White, and I'm a technical writer at Google. And I've been there since last December, or here. (laughs) So I guess the number one question you must get asked by everybody is, what's it like to work at Google? What's it like to be a technical writer at Google? Well, it's, it's pretty great. I can't lie. (laughs) For the first time in my career as a technical writer and really in my entire career, I'm doing work that I can see actively makes an impact on more than dozens, hundreds, or even thousands of people, which is kind of bananas that it's possible (laughs) to make that much impact. You've got stuff you can point at and show to your parents, I guess. Exactly. They actually understand the company that I'm working for. It's not it's not obscure. They've heard of it. It's used as a verb, so that's pretty exciting. <laughs> it's more than all she works in computers. And you're in Brooklyn. Now I all I know about Brooklyn is there's a bridge. I don't know if it's <laughs> well to do or um, up and coming or whatever. So what's it like living in Brooklyn? I love Brooklyn. When I knew that I wanted to move to New York, I already knew that I wanted to live in Brooklyn. I've been here for about seven and a half years now, and in my neighborhood, Bed-Stuy, for six of them. And I like that there's a separation between my home and my work. So I get on the subway, I go under the river, under the East River to get to Manhattan, go to work, and then I get to come home. Plus, Brooklyn is where all the cool indie restaurants and activities are. Like, I recently went to an art exhibit that was in a bouncy castle, uh, (laughs) which I don't know. I don't know where else you can find that. So Google's actually in the center of New York, then I take it. Uh, It's sort of the center southern half of Manhattan. Right. Uh, Okay, I've been to Manhattan, but but not to, I don't think I've been to, not unless the airport was in Brooklyn, I've not been there. Uh, 
you'll just have to come next time you're in town. <laughs> so we met at the Evolution of TC conference in Sofia in Bulgaria. And you mentioned you'd been speaking in Russia at a conference and um, I had a, a look at your website and um, you've mm-hmm. got a, a information on other conferences you've spoken at and also expressing an interest that you want to speak at more conferences. So what's prompted you to put yourself forward and suggest yourself to two different conferences? I love having the opportunity to get up on a stage and passionately talk about something that I care about. And mm-hmm. prior to getting into technical writing and digital media, I was pretty heavily involved in theater, which I'm pretty sure shocks no one who spent more than five minutes with me. Uh, I get to scratch that itch for a desire for performance with the added bonus of being known as an industry expert. And when I give a talk, I go in with a really small goal. I want one person to walk away and feel like they've learned something and can make active changes in their work to do better. And my first big conference talk was really last fall at Write the Docs. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure having my new employer's name on my applications is going to help me further propel into speaking at more places. But hopefully my ideas are valuable regardless. Is it the joy of sharing what you've learned or the pleasure of performing? What, what is it that you you about it? <laughs> it's both of those. I enjoy the preparation that goes into creating a talk just as much as I enjoy the talk itself. Uh, the talk I gave at Write the Docs, for example, I wrote a proposal to tear down my former employer's documentation. We had nine websites, and my goal was to have one website where you could find all of the docs. Unfortunately, I was unsuccessful. Even though my proposal was accepted and we had planned on moving forward, the priorities of the company changed pretty dramatically after that. So I applied for this conference thinking, I'm going to come in with so much knowledge. I'm going to have all this experience. I'll be able to tell people how to write a proposal and then how to implement it. But instead, I got up there and said, here's how to write a proposal to convince your manager to do something. And then here's what you do when everything blows up and you (laughs) can't actually complete what you wanted to complete. Yeah. I think the world's full of uncompleted or unfulfilled projects is the way of things. And sometimes it's better to to talk about how it was with all the gray areas of gray rather than pretend that things were absolutely perfect and it was a happy ending every time. Definitely. There's just as much to learn, if not more, from failure than there is from your successes. Now, on your website, there's some videos of your presentations, and there was one on the Joyent talk that you did. And you Mm -hmm. talked about how you defined audience types for the documentation. Can you say a little bit about what you did and what you discovered? I think it's really important as a technical writer and really anybody who creates any type of content, it's important to understand who you're creating it for. Mm -hmm. Often when we're working at a company and working on a project, we get siloed into what we believe is necessary and what we want to do to create something. But ultimately, if there's no one there who wants the product, it doesn't matter how 
great you think the product is, no one's going to buy it. So the number one focus of all of the work that I do is thinking about the specific audience and then creating for them. For example, at Joyant, and I mean, I think this is true in my current work as well. I distilled it into four different audiences. Business owners, people who are interested in the product, they want to know what the product does, understanding concepts, but they're not necessarily in the nitty gritty making things happen. There are investigators who may be more familiar with what we do. Maybe they're engineers. They know very specific questions to ask and have some time to really read and become familiar with a more complicated concept. There are problem solvers, people who come that have five minutes. They're they're in the middle of something. It's breaking. They're panicked. They think, I just need to have an answer. I am often this person who just goes to Google search and says, how do I do this thing? And you don't have time to read 20 pages to understand. You just want to solve that problem. And finally, detectives who are people who may want to know if something is possible, if they can perform a specific task, not necessarily how to do it, but rather confirmation that something is possible. And where has this come from? Is this something you've derived from your own experience or or has come from elsewhere or from research or? A combination. I've read a lot about audience work and Mm -hmm. I've spent some time with people who are better experts in that, specifically user researchers. Mm. It's a separate role, but at the same time, it's my responsibility to understand that information as well, because my work is better understanding who I'm writing it for. Yes. And there's always that pressure to get on and write and don't worry about user research. (laughs) Oh, yes. Yes. But there is value in it. I can't remember, I'm right to note that you said that technical communicators are like shepherds. I can't recall where, I think that was on the, the presentation that you did at Write the Docs, but can you tell me a bit more about what you what you meant by that? Mm-hmm. I've been trying to come up with a good metaphor to illustrate how technical writers provide guidance, because it's our job to guide users to the answers that they need to be able to solve a problem in a moment of panic or understanding the minutiae of a complicated concept, which will help their overall comprehension. But we're not just guiding our users, we're also guiding our non-writer colleagues. It's not our job to be the expert on every subject. That would be that would be impossible. But it's our job to rely on subject matter experts to know the ins and outs of a product or a topic so that we can probe and ask the right questions to get our users the information that they need right now. And sometimes that means helping our colleagues write better by acting as an editor for them, or sometimes it's guiding them to giving us the information by asking the right questions on behalf of our audience to ensure that both the product meets their needs and that our documentation meets their needs. In some ways, that's like one of these classic definitions for what it's like to be a leader in giving a direction, telling people where they fit in, um, and also why it's being done in a certain way. But it's mm-hmm. the similarities with that. The main topic I wanted to 
talk to you about or talk with you about was multimedia, multimedia and documentation. Is that what you're doing at Google or is, or is, that, is that part of what you do at Google? I hope that it eventually will be. At this point, I am actually working on a guide for how we consider multimedia documentation in the product that I cover, which is Google Ad Manager. Most of my experience in multimedia documentation stemmed from an internship I had in college for a company called TechSmith. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. The creators of Camtasia. I was social media intern. They're in... Yeah, Michigan, I think it is. Mm-hmm. Yes. So I guess we should define multimedia. So you're talking about video walkthroughs, animated GIFs, show me guides, is that type of thing? Absolutely. A visual medium above and beyond text content. So it could be images like product screenshots or diagrams. It can be GIFs and it can be video. Though I think at this point, using images of some kind is fairly ubiquitous. They're all over the place. More often than not, I'm trying to convince people to make GIFs and videos to complement their content. When should people use them? Videos are great tools for sharing knowledge, particularly when your audience has visual learners, which more often than not is the case. If you've already got rock-solid written content and that's really important, then you can think about expanding your documentation to explain a really complicated concept over video, pairing those visuals with an audio to help people learn. In fact, there was a survey that was done by TechSmith that said that employees absorb information 7% faster with video. That might seem really small, 7%. It's not absolutely life-changing. But if you think about it in the terms of time, with every task, that's extra time that's saved. And if someone can ramp up from beginner to advanced, every minute saved learning is leading to spending them doing more work and therefore being more productive for their job. And are there any situations when it's not appropriate to use multimedia? If you don't already have really clear written docs, then the video that you create is not going to be clear. And therefore, you're just left with two pieces of content that don't help people accomplish their task. It takes so much time and it costs so much money to create these sorts of content that you should be really strategic about not not replacing text content with video, but rather helping to lift it up. So text first, get your documentation, your written documentation all shipshape and Bristol fashion, as it were, and then mm-hmm. do the video recordings. Absolutely. And if a product is constantly changing, then you would also have to be constantly changing the video, which again is a major time investment. So it's probably not worth it. Yes, it does take time. So how fancy do the videos need to be? I mean, one option is to have just screenshots, screenshots with an audio narration, to have a presenter with sort of green screen sort of superimposed on a video. Uh, what's your experience of, of the different approaches? Is quick and dirty the, the appropriate thing or does it need to be sort of broadcast quality? What, what's your thoughts on that? I think it, it depends on 
a multitude of things. There are times and places where a beautiful, very expensive animated video is the solution. But unfortunately, not everybody has all the time and all the money to make that happen. Internally at Google, when we make educational videos, it takes 40 to 60 hours for the video team to produce one minute of an animated video. That's just the time to create that minute of video. It doesn't include all of the preparation beforehand. So this is weeks and weeks of work, plus the expertise to do so. But there are absolutely times when you can quickly screen record doing an action with a product or make a slide presentation that you click through and talk through. What's important is testing that content. So talking to your colleagues, hopefully, if you can, talking to a user and having them give you feedback so you know, was this effective? Did they accomplish the task that you wanted them to because they watched this video? Or if you were explaining a concept, can the audience explain it back to you in their own words to prove, yes, I grasp this content. Say there's a situation where a video needs to be done. Mm -hmm. Walk me through the stages that you would take to create a piece of multimedia. In the simplest breakdown, there's pre-production, which is absolutely the most important stage. And that's when you're doing your research, writing a script for the video and creating a storyboard. And all of that should be a map one-to-one -to, -one to the production stage where you actually make the recordings for your video, be it screencasts, audio recordings, animations, or any live footage with a green screen or otherwise. After that, there's post-production when you edit all of those pieces together until you're satisfied that the video is complete and ready to be seen by a larger audience so there's final delivery of the product, hosting it online on YouTube or on your own video server within your documentation or on a blog and sharing that with the relevant audience. You write a script and a storyboard for the video itself. Absolutely. For every piece of video content that I create, there is a script and there is a storyboard. It doesn't mean it's always super elaborate or that I've invested again, weeks of time, but that planning process is really important for a couple of reasons. One, it's an opportunity to get approval from your stakeholders. So if you put the time to write a script and go to your manager and say, hey, can you tell me, is this what you're hoping for? Did I miss something? And they say, oh, it's great. You go ahead and create the video and your manager comes back to you and says, well, actually, can you do this other thing? Can you change this language? By going to them for approval in advance, you get to say, well, yes, absolutely, I can make those changes, but it's going to take more time. It may not be delivered exactly when you hoped for. It's an insurance policy, just as much as it is a preparation policy so that you're not wasting time when it comes to the actual production process. Because if you've created a storyboard then you should know exactly what the video will look like at the end. And you don't need to, to think about, okay, I've recorded this audio. How do I translate it into images while you're already in your video editing software? That should already be planned. So you can just go ahead to producing it. 
just did a video for a client walking through an application and happily went through talking about the SIAS product, blah, blah, blah. And then they said, oh, it's we call it SIAS. So we had to go through mm-hmm. and every occurrence of SIAS had to re-record it to say SIAS instead. So when you do the storyboarding, is there a particular tool that you'll use? Is it screenshots that, you're, that make the storyboard or are you using pencil and paper? How are you actually doing the storyboarding itself? It depends on what the end result of the video will be. More often than not, it's a table in either Google Docs or a Microsoft Word document where I pair every line of audio with some sort of visual. And sometimes I am including screenshots of the product or verbally describing what's happening on the screen. So particularly when it is the walkthrough of a product, I may not actually take those screenshots because if it's only going to be seen by me and another person internally who is very familiar, that might not be the most optimal use of my time. But if it is something that's animated, I try to both describe it and draw it or take another sort of picture so that when I'm getting help to create any animations, because Personally, that is not a skill set that I have. And when I'm talking to those experts, I can best explain what I hope for so that hopefully there aren't too many rounds of revision. Some animated videos are dreadful and some are really good. There's been the one that's been doing the rounds about the GE and the light bulb and turning it on for for two seconds and turning it off for eight seconds and turning it on for two seconds and so on, which is bizarrely compelling and and very professionally done, although it does seem an absolutely mad set of instructions. You talked about, I think, in one of the yeah, presentations about there are certain aspects that can make, that encourage people to watch videos and watch some more than others. And I guess this falls into also the length of the videos. Is there any general advice for people to increase the likelihood that someone would watch a video? Definitely. I think creating multimedia, creating video that's compelling is the best way to get people to pay attention. And what that means is trying to think about what interests you just as much as your audience. If you would sit through a video and be bored, well then external people are definitely going to be bored too and not want to watch. The best example I can think of is a Photoshop tutorial series from 2007. It was called You Suck at Photoshop. And it told a fascinating story over a series of maybe a dozen videos, I'm not sure, about how to use various Photoshop tools while talking about their relationship falling apart. It was very funny, very engaging, not entirely professional, but I wouldn't have learned to use Photoshop without this set of videos. And I wanted to keep watching and keep learning. So when it comes to sort of professionalism stroke, non-professionalism, and I guess the verity of it, would your approach be to have somebody from the company do the presentation, somebody like you, or would you get a professional presenter in to do the the presenting side of things, a voice actor, that type of thing? Any thoughts on, on that aspect? I think it's whatever the creator is comfortable with. So I'm definitely comfortable and 
have been the voice of technical videos. If you watch any video from Joyent, my last employer, you will hear my voice. <laughs> you will see it is 100% top to bottom my work. But that's also because there was nobody else who was able to do that work with me. So if you have a larger team and you are able to have a professional voice actor and that's something that's important to your company, by all means, do it. I think it's important to understand tone and it's a part of understanding your brand. So having guidelines, having video style guides that talk about not just what the visuals should look like and making sure it's in line with the rest of your digital media, marketing, et cetera, but also what does the voice sound like? Is it friendly and conversational? Is it really upstanding? Do you always have to be an expert rather than somebody who's talking to a friend? All of that should be defined and inform the script that you write. I think as long as you don't have a too thicker accent and you have some melody in your voice, and I think most people have, <laughs> have a voice that's suitable for doing a voiceover. So you said in terms of working out how long you need for a project, you, you run on a, a basis of what, 40 to 60 to 1. Is that correct? I think that's only true for highly, highly animated videos, ones that right. involve illustration and then animating that illustration. Personally, the fastest I've ever created a, a technical video from script to completion was four days, including time to do other work, check email, handle tiny fires, and solve other problems. But I'd probably estimate four to 10 hours per minute of video for recording the visuals and the audio and cutting it all together. I think it's very easy to underscope a piece of video because you have to record it, then maybe add an audio track to it. Then you have to go through and listen to it again to edit the ums and ahs out or the mistakes, and then you have to publish it. And so there is a, a lot of time going through and mm -hmm. listening to it multiple times to identify the bits that need to be improved. Absolutely. And Ideally, you don't have to re-record anything. There have definitely been times I used to record my audio in a closet at home because it was the only place that I could isolate myself from the sounds of the outside world. But that meant if a line was changed, if something didn't make sense, I had to go back into that closet and re-record everything because otherwise it sounded drastically different. Yes, yes. We use a Zoom recorder with a lavalier mic for a lot of stuff and it's fairly forgiving as to where you are but you sometimes you can notice it even after you've squeezed it through all manner of different filters to try and make it sound the same getting the volume levels right is it can be a challenge mm -hmm. so in terms of the tools that you use to create content and one of the key questions i guess everyone again is curious as is what tools does google use for creating its documentation for creating its videos and i, I get the impression that it's whatever tool the person that's doing it wants to use, but are there are there any standards or to, or do you have a free reign in terms of what you use for documentation and for multimedia? We do definitely have a pretty large range of tools that we use. It is whatever you're most comfortable with means you're going to produce the best possible product. If you're stuck with a really fancy advanced tool, but you don't know how to use it, it doesn't matter how much it costs. 
because the end result's going to take two or three times the amount of time you could have done it somewhere else. So I have the tools that I use. For example, whenever I record audio, I use the program Audacity. It helps me take out all of those ums and ahs and the sound of fans, etc. I am loyal to TechSmith and Camtasia when it comes to screen recording, though I also occasionally use Final Cut Pro depending on what sort of animation I'm trying to have happen. It's just a matter of, again, comfort. But I think if you were to ask other people in my office, there are a variety of other tools they use, a bunch of Adobe tools that are in process and in use to make multimedia. So one of the aspects with video, of course, is accessibility, and I guess to an extent, usability. So is there anything that can be done with regard to multimedia and video to make it accessible to those that might have accessibility requirements? Let's put it that way. This is something that I feel really passionate about, being able to make all of your content, whatever it is, accessible and usable to all people, regardless of their abilities or if they have impairments which are permanent or temporary, like having broken glasses for the day. Some tips I have first are trying to avoid text in your videos as much as possible because that means you avoid any issue with translation. If you have text in your video that is not spoken, it doesn't benefit anyone who's visually impaired who may be watching it and listening to try and learn. And I think it's the same principles for accessible design that you would use for any flat graphic, such as avoiding color combinations that cause problems for folks who have some form of color blindness, not pairing red and green together, for example, not using excessive or overly flashy animation and distracting from what the message is. And again, something that I feel really passionate about is captioning. Once a video is uploaded, you should always be captioning the video. I'm really proud and excited that YouTube automatically creates captions for videos. But that said, the captions they create don't include punctuation. Mm -hmm. And the audio translation, especially if someone does have an accent, isn't necessarily perfect. So going back in and editing those captions to both sync it correctly, add in that punctuation, fix words that may not have been properly understood, and then those captions can then be translated so that if your market includes folks who don't speak the same language, it can be translated. So it's that video can be understood by more than just English speakers if the video was recorded in English or whatever the primary language was. Well, we're slowly going through with the podcast and adding transcripts to some older podcast episodes that we've done. And it, it can be a tricky process, but it, it is important to do. The way that we're doing that now is there seems to have been quite an improvement in the quality of the captioning from YouTube. So we're uploading the podcast to YouTube, taking the automatic captioning from that, downloading it, and then editing it. And even doing that is still about a two or three hour exercise in, as you say, fixing the punctuation. Mm -hmm. It never recognizes our company name, Cherry Leaf, correctly. So <laughs> has to uh, have to go through and change or to search and replace on things like that. Um, 
but it's yes it is it is important but it's still a bit of a struggle it's definitely tedious and it's the only thing more tedious of course is sitting re-listening to yourself having to type it all out but ultimately if for the largest possible reach it's worth it i think well, episode one of this podcast was about stenography, and <laughs> wonderful stenographers can write at two hundred and forty words a minute. The professionals, and it is now available for hobbyists. If you can can get to one hundred and sixty words, then you can go at the speed of somebody speaking. But there is a learning curve with that. Hopefully, we'll see more people take that up and be able to write faster. There was live captioners at Write the Docs, which. What a fascinating and amazing career that is. And they gave a lightning talk about how they do their work. It, I highly recommend it. And that's white coat captioning. Yes, yes. Related to accessibility, and one of the criticisms of video is trying to find information in there. With a page, you can scan and scan and go straight to it. It's indexed by Google. You can go, again, dive into the middle of a page. The criticism of video has been that you have to watch the whole flipping thing to get to the point where it is. Is there anything that can be done to address that particular challenge? Absolutely. The longer a video is, and when I say long, I'm thinking... 90 seconds or two minutes or longer, it's mm -hmm. really useful to include timestamps in the description of your video so that someone can skip ahead and perhaps skip an introduction to get to answer a specific question. And it helps users jump around between topics, especially if the video is actually 10, 15, or 20 minutes long. Mm -hmm. Personally, I don't want to sit through a video that long unless I'm learning for a hobby. If I'm trying to solve a problem, I want the answer right away. So having those timestamps is crucial. So do you do your videos? I think I saw from Wistia that the, the ideal video is between one and three minutes. Do you segment a long video or do you, is there sort of an ideal time or is it the, the length of the videos, the, the amount of time that's needed to describe what you need to describe? Do you have any strategies on that? I definitely try to keep my videos as short as possible. I would rather have a series of three short videos than mm -hmm. one long video. That way, things are segmented by subject matter more. And it makes it easier for folks to listen to something and learn and come back rather than having to do it all at once. I don't know that there's a magic answer of, the perfect video is 60 seconds long, but I do know that our attention span is getting shorter and shorter and shorter. So it's always beneficial to trim the fat, cut things out that aren't necessary, and to break things up into sections like you would in an article, having section headers, which can be separated either by a, a visual element, a a lower third, for example, which is a visual video indication of, oh, we're switching topics, or splitting that content up into multiple videos. Now, I think I read coming or, or is here now that Google is indexing, because it's auto-captioning videos, it mm -hmm. therefore has text that it can index. And it's also, I think, also 
captioning or auto-transcribing podcasts that are publicly available. So I suspect if it's not here now, very soon, Google will be providing in the search engine results links to videos and to links to particular time stamps in videos, which means that the companies that have lots of audio content or video content on how to do things may get a bump in the uh, the search engine rankings. I don't know if you've seen or heard anything on that. I haven't, but I sure hope it's true because that would be incredibly beneficial, especially, I don't know, when I'm looking for answers and you can get so easily lost in the millions and millions of videos on YouTube mm -hmm. trying to find an answer. If there is captions and transcripts that are indexed so I can find exactly where my solution is, that would be magical. It seems a logical next step. Maybe I, it may be me just taking two and two and, and, uh, and making five, but oh, I think I might have read it. But um, anyhow, have you got any other conferences coming up and planned or are you looking for the next opportunity to speak? I do. I'm really excited to announce that I'll be speaking at Build Stuff in both Lithuania and Vilnius and in Kiev, Ukraine. So that's in November. Oh, right. I'm really excited. Eastern Europe, I'm very excited to get to go back. And until then, I'm going to keep looking and hopefully be able to get a few more things on the docket, though maybe not until 2020. I can I can take a little break traveling for now. And what will you be talking about in Vilnius and in Kiev? I'll be talking about why it's important for developers to write documentation. The whole reason that I became a technical writer is I was a web developer on a team of folks who had been there for 5, 10, 15, and 20 years, mm -hmm. respectively. And that meant there was a lot of historical knowledge that wasn't on paper anywhere and meant that I had to ask a lot of questions that I could have easily solved problems myself yeah. had it been written down. And I wanted to help whoever would take on the position after I left not have to go through the same process. So I think it's really important that not everywhere has a full-time technical writer. Developers have to be responsible for that translation of knowledge, not just for future developers who join the team, but also for their future selves. Because you might work on a project and then be asked to go back to it in a year and wonder, why did I do that? How did I do that? Help your future self. Write docs. I think you'll enjoy Vilnius. I went there, gosh, must have been about 10 years ago, and there's a medieval high street. People going up and down on Segways. There was an Irish bar and a, a tea shop with teapots cut in half and glued to the side of the wall. I don't know if that's still there. So is there anything else we need to talk about or cover? We've gone a fair lick through a lot of stuff, but I don't know if there's anything else in terms of the multimedia side that we need to talk about. I think we've, we've probably rattled through the key part of it. I think so. And it was such a pleasure getting to know you in Sofia and at that conference, as well as being able to talk to you again today. It's great to know more folks in the industry. And I look forward to having another conversation where I get to hear more about the work that you do. Well, that would be nice. Yes, it was great fun. We were both presenting at the same time. So I didn't have an opportunity to 
sit in on your presentation. So it was a good reason to arrange this podcast episode and just chat on and go from there. That's another thing with conferences, opportunity to make new friends and acquaintances. Having a global network is definitely a good thing. That's right. Yes. I think we'll call it quits at that point. Lovely to speak to you, Alexandra. Lovely to speak with you as well. I hope you have an excellent rest of your week. Thank you.